You're listening to the Felony Inc. Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Inc. Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. The Felony Inc. Podcast airs live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. My name is Mark Grimes, co-founder of Startup Radio Network. Now please settle in, enjoy. It's time for the Felony Inc. Podcast. Hey there, groovy guys and gals. Welcome to the Felony 8 Podcast. Good morning from downtown Portland, Oregon. That's right, Oregon. And brought to you by Startup Radio Network, I'm Lad Justison. And each week, we interview formerly incarcerated men and women who have turned their lives around and started successful businesses. The original host of our program, Dave Dahl of Dave's Killer Bread, was able to turn his life around and make the best bread in the world. Isn't that right, Mark? Ever. Best bread ever. His turnaround story has inspired many, and we hope that today's guest will do the same. But before I get to our guest, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Mark Gailey. Hello. And, uh, Hello. His name fits him really well. Owner of Murder Inc. <laughs> Tattoo Parlor right here in downtown Portland, and a fine example of a formerly incarcerated knucklehead that was able to halfway turn his life around. Mark with Halfway, I like that. <laughs> Maybe I should go to a halfway house. Halfway house, Mark. <laughs> that's pretty much just, that's it. So what's happening, Mark? I noticed that you uh, came uh, kind of slickly dressed this morning. What was that all about? I mean... If you got a be white, put, white coat on. If you're going to, like, be impotent, you want to look impotent. Oh. I, I thought you agreed to wear a suit today. No, I, I don't think I ever agreed to that. I'm trying to raise the prices of my tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So what is what's happening at your at your uh, studio down there? You still oh, it's, it's an ever changing uh, planet all its own. Um, wow. So yeah, had to um, deal with some situations. People have their issues. So yeah. Um, Why can't you just get a regular cool staff of people on there on a regular basis? Why is this always influx of all these dramatic? I, uh, I think tattoo, tattoo artists. Tattoo artists. Tattoo artists are designed as a whole as like this alien creature that has no uh, intent or purpose that makes any sense oh so um i i believe they're uh, eccentric um an artist has something going on in the left side of their brain or the right side some side of their brain and they have to uh i don't know they have to express it in yes. weird ways yes so and you're the better the artist the more eccentric they are it seems like so but i've done a lot of uh I, want, I don't want to say damage control, but a lot of nurturing yeah. to get them like directed in the right path as far cool. as um, producing the best art and being the most professional. And uh, your love life. I, I know that every time you come on the show, um, you've got a different girlfriend with a whole different set of really super weird circumstances. Okay. <laughs> yeah? Is it still going? It's, uh, yeah, it's incredible, actually. Um, it's, that's another, yeah, my social life. Is All right, a... let's get off, Mark. Mark. We've had enough of Mark. I can't take him out of here. Man, you can only take so much of that. I was pretty good at that. I was bouncing on it. You know, your love life sounds like your tattoo parlor. <laughs> it, it is. It can be. Well, he dates all the tattooists. No, I don't. I've yes, never, you I do. Don't, what tattooists have I dated? I don't know. Not one. Really? Maybe really? you should start. Mm, I don't think so. All right. Well, let's... don't mix work with 
pleasure. All uh, on. Let's move on. Yeah, time to move on. Holy God, thank you. crap! Wow, I didn't. Let's I don't talk even, about you your love what? life, I'm, lad. My love life. <laughs> yeah, that's well, more important. Well, me and All on, we've been going out for about three weeks now. It's about yeah, time. Congratulations. Uh, we we're trying to, to work it out. You know, it's a. Uh, well, we, we, we went to the U two concert. And, okay, well, I'll give you guys some space. <laughs> right. All right. Well, we are in a small some room. Some dead space. All right, so let's get oh, to our guest today. today. Can we get to our guest today? Too much coffee. Yes, this absolutely. I already has, talked to him. This guy has quite a repertoire. Did I say that right? He looks familiar. He does. Are you in Shelton? You've probably seen me on TV. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be anyway. on t- I'll be on TV September 8th on Axis TV interviewing me for the uh, Incarceration Festival. Nice. Anyway, this guy's name is Chris Beasley. He is the board president. Chris is a community psychologist who conducts community-engaged applied research to strengthen communities while also participating in grassroots organizing to support such settings and helping students develop knowledge and skills for this type of work. Wow, that's quite a mouthful right there. (laughs) You can tell it's written by an (laughs) academic, huh? As the principal investigator for the Post-Prison Education Research Lab, P-E-R-L, he uses a variety of psychological subdisciplines to better understand social and psychological factors that facilitate and hinder transitions from prison to college. As an assistant professor, wow, assistant professor, Alon, what do you think of that? He doesn't look old enough to be a professor. It sounds professional. Wow. (laughs) He doesn't look old enough to be a professor. Holy moly. He's also helping the University of Washington, Tacoma, strengthen support for people making these transitions to UWT. As a community organizer, Chris co-founded FICGN and has been helping develop a uh, consortium of prison and post-prison education programs in Washington. Lastly, Chris is a board director of Civil Survival an organization that organizes people who have been directly impacted by the criminal justice system to build connections, gain knowledge, and increase political participation. All on, did I do okay right there? You know, I was just thinking your cold reading is on point. Dude, I don't know. I struggled. Wow. (laughs) Man, well, anyway, welcome to the program, Chris. What the hell, after all that, man, I mean, that's quite a bit of stuff. I think we're done. Yeah, let's go. All right, we're out of here. All right. We're out of the tattoo shop. <laughs> so, let me get this straight. Have you been in prison before, Chris? Yeah, yeah, I did some time, yeah. Okay, so that's where it all started. Yeah. Of course, you know, sympathy and empathy for fellow inmates. But let's go back a little bit further. Why don't, we, why don't you tell us a little bit about your childhood, kind of that kind of stuff, where and how it led into whatever, you know, you got in trouble for. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I grew up a gay kid in uh, southern Illinois, in the cornfields of southern Illinois. Not the funnest place to be a gay kid in the 90s. Probably still not a fun place to be a gay kid. <laughs> but also grew up, what I, I like to say, like on the wrong side of the tracks, right? But growing up eating bologna, macaroni and cheese with hamburger, macaroni and cheese with tuna, macaroni and cheese with like whatever else, right? I like that. I like all that. <laughs> but I never, you know. What's what, wrong with that? Nothing, nothing. nothing but just uh, to, you know, I, I think it, it just, I think it just helps me think about the world that I was situated in, the social world that I was situated in. Right. Like, I didn't really think of very many possibilities in my life. I remember when I was a kid, for a little while, I wanted to be an Air Force pilot, right? Like, that was really important to me. But then I was a gay kid, and it was like, that was quickly quashed, because you couldn't 
be gay and be in the military then. Well, not outwardly, at least. And then I remember being, I was the fastest kid, like the runner, right? And I wasn't in track or anything, but I wasn't in track because, like, then you have locker rooms, right? And then you had to be naked with other guys. And So you were openly gay, young? Not openly, no. Okay. I was cla- so I was, it was sort of this weird thing where I sort of knew I was gay, but... How did you know I that? I didn't what, know. What was the thought pattern back then? How, why did you think that? Or well, I mean, did you have interaction with some other other guys? I mean, how'd that happen? Yeah, when um, I had a friend, and uh, we sort of did some things with the friend. Uh, so on the barn, uh, yeah, something like that. But, uh, <laughs> so I, so I, so I sort of knew that. I did things with guys, but I couldn't tell myself I was gay at the same time. So right. I was gay, but wasn't gay. Wasn't right? socially acceptable. Right, right, right. And I, personally, not even psychologically okay. acceptable. So some of both, right? Right. Um, and so it's so like the track thing I didn't want to do either because of the, the whole gay thing. And I remember the first time, though, that, that so something... Oh, yeah. how did you know that you were the fastest if you didn't participate? Because I, well, I was still in gym, right? So Gee. gym class and, right. and like we'd go out to the field and I'd like sprint out to the field every time. And bam. And, and everybody would like try to keep up with me, right? Yeah. And nobody could keep up with me. So. Oh, nice. And even like the track kids, right? Like they, they would try to keep up with me and they couldn't. So, yeah. Well, nice. So they try to recruit you? No one even asked. I mean, I was... Huh. It's kind of like the town that I was in. Like you didn't really... It was all white people, so you didn't really have, like, the black-white dynamic, you know? But it was, like, people on one side of the tracks and people on the other, mm-hmm. right? And if you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, you weren't even, like, invited into that social space, oh, you know what I mean? Like, right. nobody even asked me if I wanted to join track, you know? Wow. Right. So, going back to the gay thing, so mm-hmm. you are you know this. You kind of figure this in your head that that's kind of where you're at. Yeah. But, and the other people there, you know... You're saying they don't, you know, they probably wouldn't accept it, but they didn't know that, yeah. right? So you're the fastest kid, so it was just your own stigma in your own head that yeah, kept yeah. you away from doing what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, that's, you know, the work that I do now really goes back to a lot of that, right? Being, you know, having this invisible stigmatized identity and how did I grapple with that as I went through life? How did I get to a point where I could come out about it? what impact did coming out have on the people around me and sort of start to reshape their attitudes, right? I use all that now in the work that I do with formerly incarcerated people and trying to reshape narratives around incarceration. Well, yeah, that would that would help, you know, because, you know, formerly incarcerated people are kind of, they have this, uh, you know, this enigma about being, you know, back in society or, you know, they think, oh, I'm not part of it. You know, that was one of yeah. my problems after doing 20 years. I, I thought, wow, you know, I'm not going to fit back into this, you know, mm-hmm. especially technology and all that stuff. I just, I was scared. Stigma. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, I guess you can see that you, if, if you're smart enough to use that, then uh, you can use it on yourself. And then later on, you know, of course help other people. Yeah. And I I, you know, I, could, I didn't feel like I was part of society before I went in. You know, that's part of the reason why I did some of the things that I did, right? Like, I think everyone likes to feel like they have some self-respect and self-worth. Everyone likes to, I think, feel like they're contributing to the community around them. And, like, I just didn't have spaces where I felt like that I was encouraged to, to contribute in those ways. But, like, in drug dealing and in the meth manufacturer scene and stuff like that, like, that's a place where my intelligence could shine. 
right knowledge of you know being able to like read about like chemistry and recipes and stuff like that some breaking bad shit <clears throat> well so, something like i mean but that's that's a way that your sort of intelligence and your ingenuity can like shine a little bit and then i had something that i could provide for my community and some people might say well it harms your community right but it's a community that needs and wants something and you can be that provider for that and it also it's weird you know but it also gives you some acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you're you're able to, you know, the guys that uh, you, in your head, thought that would never accept you if they knew how you were, um, now you're dealing with them. And, and not only that, you're kind of the boss. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you got this stuff going, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what happened from there? I mean, what, what how did you eventually get in trouble? Um, well, um, the... Uh, for my so, you know, I was in the 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 meth scene for a while, and I, I just got pulled over too many times. And I got caught with it. I never really got in trouble for the the meth, like being involved in like meth manufacture or anything like that. I just got pulled over too many times, got caught with stuff. It was actually one time though that I had a bag of like manufacturing supplies in the middle of my living room, and the cops came in to get me and search my place, and they. They found like this paraphernalia on the wall in a container, and they didn't find all that manufacturing supplies right there in the middle. Of the they walked room. right past it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I never, I never really got in trouble for that stuff. I just got pulled over too many times and caught with stuff. Well, you're lucky. You just got caught for possession. Mm, yeah. You didn't get caught for the bigger, you know, offense, which of course would have been manufacturing. Which lad has a little bit of knowledge of. Well, a little bit, but, <laughs> but you know that that's you know. It saved you a little bit, really. You oh, know? definitely. I mean, yeah. so you guys, you guys can talk later. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All on, you want to learn how to make meth? But maybe you all should trade some recipes. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah, you guys could exchange yeah. recipes. Wow. <laughs> can you make it out of, like, uh, wasp spray? Different kind of baking. I, anyway. got, I got new recipes I work with now, and those are, like, recipes of, like, self-transformation. <laughs> right, and right. right. And stuff. <laughs> we can share those. Though. Let's do that, yes. <laughs> from, from dope dealer Thanks to Thanks for keeping dealer, us you know? on point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you eventually got busted, and uh, this where were you living at the time? Uh, so I was living in a, a small town in southern Illinois still. Uh, southern Casey, Illinois. Illinois. Yeah, yeah. You got busted, went went down for uh, possession. Yeah, just possession stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, you know, kind of an oddball question, but so you go to prison. So now you have to shower with the other guys, right? Yeah. So how was, bath. how was that? Yeah, I mean, not cool. Not cool. Like definitely and like I'm still like not really accepting the gay thing myself, but it's sort of right. becoming even more like present in my life. Um so it was it was it's actually kind of traumatizing for me. Um I really hadn't you know, before I went in the closest trauma that I had using meth for a few years and being a gay closeted guy, um I was often like scared for my life, right? Especially being in a rural area. So I, I know for like years and years, night after night, I would walk around with like weapons and and with me um, thinking that people were out to kill me because I was gay and they knew I was gay and stuff, right? And going into prison made the stupidest mistake you could ever do, which is also like do a bunch of meth before going into prison, which didn't help any. But it really just sort of highlighted all these like concerns for like my life and stuff like that. Um, I think actually it wasn't even the shower that was the biggest thing. It was the first haircut, which people might like see as something normal. But I think sometimes like prison can be chal- can be traumatizing for people in ways that you don't even think could be traumatizing, right? Because I'm I'm gay, I'm sort of aware of it, and I'm trying to make sure that other people don't know it. 
But I have this, and I had always had my hair cut by a female before that at like salons and stuff, right? Um, but there's this guy like touching my head and right up there in my space. And I'm already like super socially anxious because I'm just getting in. It's my first haircut. And I remember just like totally like just sweating, really, uh, really just sort of losing touch with the world around me. And uh, ended up with the with the most screwed up haircut ever. <laughs> Why was it mandatory that you went in there and got a haircut? Uh, I don't remember. Probably I don't. I, I don't know. It's just it's just a thing that everyone was doing and receiving. Everybody went in to get their haircut. Right. So, that, yeah. That's weird because you know for you the haircut was traumatic. For me it was uh, you know the bend over and cough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was that was a big one for me, Mark. What yeah. you, what was yours? You got burnt before, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> Um, I don't know. It's just an asshole. Um, first thing I do is start fighting people. Yeah. Um, you know, I prove myself. I was a little. I looked like I was twelve when I first went into prison because I was like uh, baby face. So I don't know. First big biker dude that went by and called me a fish. I like attacked him. You did? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was like a, that was like the first thing let me out of intake into the hallway. How'd that turn out? Um, people quit messing with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way you got to do it, really. I um, mean, you know, that little guy was crazy. Don't mess with him. Yeah, he's he, he can whip his ass, but he'll come back again. That's right. really how it is. I don't think he whipped my ass, though. That's the thing. <clears throat> so now you're in prison, and you got uh, you know your first stigma out of the way. Uh, how did it go from there? It's all right after that. I mean, I was in. Medium for receiving and then minimum later on. So How long did you deal. do all together? Cakewalk. Yeah, well, I got some shit about like a tattoo that I have on my lower back, like some tramp stamp. Tramp stamp. You got I, a tramp stamp? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I have. I got a card. I got a tattoo shop like three blocks over here. I can cover that up. Cover that, yeah, yeah, it's not very good. It's <laughs> gonna be a whole back piece. <laughs> it's a kitchen t- tramp stamp at that. So you know, Mark's got a a picture of a full woman on the on his back. <laughs> But it wasn't it wasn't bad. I had money before I went in, so I was able to get money on the books and a little bit and so it was minimum. Not bad. Yeah. How long did you do? So you're balling. Just long enough to get good time. So I I had done enough county time. By the time I got in I just had like a few months. So Oh yeah. cool. So you're in and out and yeah. then So when you know, another oddball question. So when you were in there, did you find anybody else in there that you know? Was gay and that? No, I didn't even. I didn't even look. No, can we no, talk about his business? About I'm just <laughs> curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we haven't had somebody on here that the first thing they tell us was that they were they were gay. You know? yeah, yeah, so that I'm is curious. A, I, that'd be crazy. I can guess. we just you know we yeah, can just right. talk about it, right? Okay. Right? No, 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 I'm just like when I'm in, I'm just like no, don't even like show signs that you're gay. Don't Did you even, notice like, other look. gay people? You got gaydar, you know? I didn't even look. I didn't. Ha- I was like, just don't even. Blinders? Yeah, just blinders. Because I, I knew I didn't have a whole a whole lot of time anyway. So I just like just stuck to my own world. You know, there's like a couple people that I would like hang out on the yard with and stuff like that. But it was mostly just like blinders, you know? Right. Yeah. Under the radar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we, you know, most of the guys we talk to, they have what, you know, we call um, an aha moment, mm. you know? Um Obviously, you know, drug dealing, making meth and all that stuff. Um, you could have got out and went right back to it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did you? Uh, definitely went back to the using meth. Yeah, using. I, 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 I tried not to when I got out, but it's like, I don't know, it's the world I knew. And that's, you know, you go back to... Gravitate towards it. Yeah, and you go, like... It's, Feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. And that's like who I knew, too, right? Small town and Casey, uh, you know, and there's already this separation I say the tracks, right? It's not physically the tracks, but there's mm-hmm. that social separation, right? 
what else are you going to do? Everybody you know like uses And you just got out of prison. You're like a kingpin now on the streets, right? Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, that's kind of popular because of it. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, Weird, huh? You know what, all on? I think it's about time for us to take our first break. So, you know what? We'll be right back. CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business so chris you get out of prison you got this spanking new hairdo is it the first thing you did get out when you got out did you go get a new haircut uh, i don't know probably first thing i did was probably go get a. no i didn't go get a bag of meth that's not because i was gonna stay clean when i got out and i was trying so i just stuck around home waiting for my po so now you're on parole how long did you have on parole probably a year probably a year uh-huh. So you went on got high. Um, how'd you get around that with your parole officer? Well, he did. He did. I think I only saw him once. Oh, and I, I mean, it's small. It's, heavy caseload. Uh, yeah, it was a rural area, a heavy caseload. Like he just would drive around and like visit people once in a while. And I think he just stopped by once, did the UA, and then I was good after that. That was it. Yeah. yeah. Then you went and got high. Probably. Yeah. Well, I know I did at some point. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, you know. Like I was, I was uh, asking you earlier. There's, there's got to be some kind of a, you know, one of those moments. Were you, where, looking, for, were you looking for a job or? Yeah, definitely looking for something. Like, cause I, before I went in, I had, like, in a small town, like, you know, a good factory job is like the middle class thing. You know, so I had a really good factory job, and so I made money on that. I had the dope dealing and and uh, stuff going on. Um, so I was just trying to get something back again. Um, I did some temp jobs at, at first. But then I had, like, I think the first moment, though, was I had an uncle who asked me if I had thought about going to college. And even, like, when I was a kid, I never really thought about going to college. Like, it never just even registered for me. And so that was the first time I ever really, really thought about going to college. I didn't even know what I was going to do. I just knew that I wanted something in my life to change. I knew what I was doing wasn't working. I just didn't know how to get there. And I was like, I'll try this out. And so I was just going to get an associate's degree at first. In what? Uh, human services. I knew I wanted to help people. Right. Yeah. So, you know, cool. there's there's your uncle. He threw that in on you, mm. you know, and uh, sometimes it takes, you know, it's weird. Um, you know, I, I know uh, sometimes you, I look back on things that kind of changed my life, and, and it wasn't much. Mm. It was somebody saying something or somebody suggesting something or, or you know, somebody giving you, uh, you know, a little bit of a, an uplift on some particular thing, but... There it was. There's your uncle, you know. Mm-hmm. So you decided to, to go, what, a community college? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you start taking classes, mm-hmm. working. Uh, work study. I got a work study job in the computer lab. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So how did it go from there? Uh, good, good. I got, good. I got good grades mostly. I mean, I was still 
like using the first two years and just trying to get sober, trying to get sober, and had longer and longer periods of sobriety, I guess, in there. Um, and then when I was on that, when I was going to college, I, there was a TRIO program, which is a student support services program, and they took us to a university down in New Orleans, and that's the first time I had ever stepped on foot on a university campus. And that's sort of another one of those moments that started to help me realize that something else could be possible in my life. I, I was on a university campus. Why couldn't I go get a bachelor's degree, right? So that's the moment that sort of ignited that possibility. Sweet. So you're taking classes. Mm -hmm. You're kind of getting, you know, I know this was uh, something for me when I was in prison is that, um, you know, my whole life, <clears throat> my stepdad, you know, always told us we were nothing and I don't know, whatever, you know. But then I went and uh, took a GED. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in my life, after, you know, after leaving, you know, high school, um, I didn't graduate, that I realized that, hey, you know, I'm really not that stupid, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can get something done here, you know, and I, and I passed the test real easy and got my GED, so was that something for you when you, when you went to college, uh, you know, obviously, you know, your younger years in life, you probably didn't have the greatest outlook on yourself. Mm -hmm. So now you're in college, and uh, you're taking some classes. You're getting good grades. Mm -hmm. um, that had to be a changing point for your mind, you know, that, hey, you know what, I am something. Yeah, I think the between, like, the, the good grades and the classes, um, I think the work study was really important to me because I'd only done, like, factory jobs before that. And so it was like I could be valued for, like, what I knew in a different way. And then I had a job, like, doing tutoring and mentoring, too. So I think that really opened up the doors of possibility from for me doing that stuff. Well, so you're you're deciding, you know, you're taking human services as, mm -hmm. as your as your uh, what do you call it uh, major major, mm -hmm. and so you're starting to kind of interact with people. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see some things happen, you know, in other people's lives that kind of I'm sure um, correlated with you know your life. Mm -hmm. Uh, so how did how did you get into what you're doing now? Where where did that kind of start? Obviously, you at some point you had to have um, totally stopped using meth, mm -hmm. drugs in general, and made that change into you know, hey, you know what? If I'm going to help somebody else, I got to make sure that my you know I'm good to go first. You know. Yeah, I think the the the, the thing that probably helped me get sober the most was like coming out and finally like owning that I was gay so the internet really helped because um, I met people and I was in chat rooms and I could sort of start to interact with people in a different way in the chat room like outwardly because before it was like, like we don't even look each other in the eye we'll just like do our thing you know what I mean we'll just have sex and not look each other in the eye so there's like no emotional content to it you know so there's like, no like me and all on yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. don't look me in the eye all on <laughs> stop it <laughs> He's looking me in the eye. Anyway, go ahead. But then, but then uh, I met a guy on the internet up in Minnesota, and um, I had started coming out when I went to a, a university campus and went and moved into the dorm. So I got away from my my hometown and sort of came out then. And then I started to just feel more comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't trying to hide who I was, and so I could sort of be who I was, and I wasn't trying to cover that up with with probably drugs and trying to fit in right. with drugs and stuff like that. And then um, so I was up in Minnesota, and I was sober then. And I still wasn't thinking about grad school, though, until, like, the very last semester. And this is sort of also another moment where somebody asks you a question, right? The very last semester, my senior year, a professor asked me if I was going to grad school. And I hadn't even really thought about it before, right? And so then I started to think about it, and I decided to go to a grad program. 
And when I actually, you know, uh, you read about my research stuff in the bio, right? Mm -hmm. At this point, I was so scared of research that I chose a master's program so almost solely because I didn't have to do a research thesis for that master's program, right? What was it about research that you didn't like? You know, I just uh, I, I thought it was you know I thought it was a lot of like math, math, and it, like my first college algebra class in college I failed. My first statistics class, I got a C in it. So I just didn't think that I was like cut out for the research stuff. You know, it just seemed something really complicated. I didn't know much about it. But you did it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I, it was it was because like when I was in my master's program, I needed some money, right? That'll get you to do lots of things you normally wouldn't do, right? Yeah. And right, uh, Mark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that. They give lots of bad bad <clears throat> tattoos even when you don't want to. No, no, no you give great. It happens. Yeah. Um, and. And somebody had a research position, and I needed money, so I took that job. And I started to look at research in a different way by doing it. I started to realize that it was just a way to answer life's curiosities, that you could look something up on Google that Google didn't even know the answer to, and you could go out and use a research process and find the answers to that, and you could publish it, and then Google would learn the answer, and then anyone in the world could look up that question and find out the answer to it, right? So I just started to really shift my perspective on research, that it wasn't just this, like, complicated set of, like, hard math and tools and stuff, but it was really just a way to answer these curiosities that no one knew the answer to. Wow. And so what was the grade on that? Um, so I got, I got A's, like, once I hit grad school. It, right. was, it was gravy then. So you, you heard all that. Just how you looked at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, in the master's program, I, there was a thesis option that you could choose. And I ended up choosing the, the the research thesis option anyway, right? So I chose that school because I didn't have to do the thesis, and I did the thesis anyway. Wow, that's cool. So obviously, um, all this stuff that you're doing, this new confidence that you have in yourself, um, now you're you're open and and uh, you don't have to hide stuff anymore. So, you know, and that's that's a big thing about you know when I went to work at Dave's Kilo Bread, you know. Um, it was uh, an enlightening thing for me because David already, already threw out his story. You know, everybody knew about Dave and, you know, him being in prison all that time. And that was something that I always had a stigma about. You know, what if somebody finds out that I'd been to prison, mm -hmm. you know? But then I get a chance to go to work for this place where it's out there. Mm -hmm. So now you're building even more confidence and, and some, you know, some education. Mm -hmm. And that obviously took you to the point where you're at now. How did that progress from that point? Yeah, so um, when I was in grad school, uh, I had a field work class because it's community psychology, so they get you out there, like, actually in the world, like, doing stuff. And um, I decided to start... Uh, so I, I was also thinking a little bit about the privilege that I had. Like, when I got out, I had a house that I could go to. You know, it was unheated upstairs in the cold Midwest winters, right? And you had to, like, just breathe under the blankets to stay warm, right? But I had a place I could stay at least, right? Um, I had a dad that would drive an hour and a half in the morning to take me to school and drive back home, and in the, the, at night he'd do the same thing, right? But I had a dad that could take me to, to school even though I didn't have a license. So I started to become a little bit more aware of like the privileges that I did have in my life. And some I know I started to realize that not everyone has an uncle who asks them if they thought about going to college. And so I decided to start um, a support program for people coming out of prison that wanted to go to college in, in Chicago. And so I developed that uh, mutual help support program there in Chicago. So you're able to go back into the prisons and recruit people? 
Uh, we did some of that. We went in once and like did a talk and stuff, and sort of talked about college and stuff like that. Were they were they offering college programs in prison there? Uh, some, yeah. Illinois has a has a fairly like robust system. One of the the thing that we found that was like the most challenging about it at the time. This sort of goes back to like the stigma and stuff. Is that it was really hard to find formerly incarcerated mentors at the time because people like cover that X on their back up when they get out. You know what I mean? They change their lives and they don't look back. And other organizations were really protective of people that they knew. So even though I said like I'm a formerly incarcerated person and I'm developing this support program for people transitioning from prison to college, all the organizations I approached that I thought would know formerly incarcerated graduates. They were like, we can't tell you about them. We can't right. connect you with them. You know, and so that's that's why um, I started the formerly incarcerated college graduates network. It was because I saw how hard it was to find formerly incarcerated college graduates, and how hard it was to develop a support network when you lacked that. And so I decided to develop a national network of formerly incarcerated college graduates, so that if anyone around the country wanted to do something like that, or if anyone in the country had a podcast and they were looking for people that they would be able to find people through that network. Well, you know, and that's another networking uh, way to get jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, I know that, you know, I, like it, I always refer to Dave's Killer Bread, but 30% of the workforce at one point was ex-felons. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because, you know, it wasn't that Dave just hired these people to, uh, because they were ex-felons, he hired them because they were, you know, they were ready to work mm-hmm. and, and they did a good job. Mm-hmm. But that's one thing good like this show. Um, you know, we've had many people on here that um, I'm sure if um, their coworkers and other companies that they work with probably didn't even know mm-hmm. that they were formerly incarcerated. And I don't know if this has ever had a bad effect on somebody. I hope not of them being on our show and people finding out. But that's just uh, you know, it it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You know, and. In the market today, there's a lot of jobs out there. People are looking for jobs. They're ready to hire, and they're and a lot of companies are ready to set aside that you know the fact that somebody's been in prison and hire them. So, so you um, do you get grants and stuff um, for these guys and, uh, and women? You work with women too, right? Yeah, I don't really I don't really do any direct service stuff. So the um, the network is you can think of it um, like partly as a uh, an alumni association without an institutional affiliation, right? And so alumni associations, they connect people and they connect people with opportunities, right? And so that's one of the things that, that we do as a network. Um, we also uh, transform so- the social narrative about formerly incarcerated people by providing the alternative narrative of p- people that get college degrees and go out and do professional stuff, right? That's sort of a, an unsaid part of the story. And then we sort of help support um, policy changes, both uh, institutional and uh, and public policy changes. Uh, actually, on, on that last point, um, I'll mention that Oregon State University, if you're not already aware, are you aware of the policy at Oregon, uh, Oregon State University? No. So they require every student with a criminal record, any criminal record, misdemeanor or felony, to go through a screening process. You have to go through a review board that determines what kind of, uh, what kind of campus activities and community activities you can be involved in if you have any kind of criminal record at Oregon State University. They just started that last year, by the way. Is that good or bad? Well, I, I, you, I, I, think, it's, I think it's... It's prejudgmental. But don't you think, um, you know, so say there's a, a sex offender that wants to go to college and he has uh, absolutely has all the right to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Don't you think that... It would be, you know, something in their in their 
behalf to to know where this guy's at, what kind of programs he's in, where he's at, and who's he, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, that, I think on one thing is that you know, if if somebody's on the registry, right, and if they're if they're any kind of like risk, to, well, I guess first of all, it's like the lowest recidivism rate of any crime is is people um, who have um, sexually class, class uh, offenses classified as uh, sexual in nature. Um, but another thing is, like, if they're on the registry, which if they're higher risk, they're going to be on the registry, the school's going to get notified anyway. And they'll already be on a support plan with their CCO. Right? So their CCOs are monitoring what they're engaged in, and they have certain limitations already about what they can be engaged in. Right? So they're not going to be allowed to, to be around people that they tend to be drawn to and, and sexually and stuff like that. Right? Right. And so they're already, we already have, like, these systems of, of checks and balances in place. And the policy is a lot bigger than that too, right? If you had if you had stolen something from a store when you were eighteen years old, like you're gonna have to go through this process, you know. Right. But on the other hand, um, when when a you know when they're doing this, when they're making these policies, right? Mm-hmm. It also kind of shows, on the other hand, that they are accepting these people into their their college, right? Isn't that a good thing? I, I well. Th- I think that they, I, it is good that the, that they're accepting people into their college, um, but I don't, I don't. So that that part's good. Yeah. Um, but are they really accepting them into their community or not? I think is the question. Like, right. if I went to the grocery store and every time I went to the grocery store, I had to get fingerprinted, and they would decide what kind of aisles I was allowed to go in because of my criminal record. Then I, I would feel like like I can come in, but am I really accepted in? You know? Right. But, you know, that's one thing that, uh, you know, I've had to accept, uh, you know, the stigma of being in prison. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mark has to accept it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Mark has his own business, which kind of helps him out. You know, I'm not like getting a job somewhere else and having to go through that process to tell them, hey, look, yeah, you know, I was in prison. And Mark, you know what, you've been in prison probably 15 years of your life or something, 17, right? Um, 17 years, the, so. This, the health licensing agency does uh criminal background checks and you have to disclose your criminal history um, and if you get a new crime and you have to renew your license every time <clears throat> every time you renew your license every year you have to let them know if you've committed any misdemeanors or felonies right so you know it's something you know I think that in the big picture if you're somebody who's determined to change their life and get on with your life you know, let's jump through the hoops. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to. Mark had to. You know, obviously you had to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I probably don't agree with all of what Oregon State University is doing, but um, at least they're giving people chances. You know, so I mean, I would jump through the hoops in mm-hmm. order to do that. You know, I would still, I would still too. And like I remember, like my first academic job, I, like I definitely like keenly like know the feeling of of being in a space where you're not allowed to express who you are. And like when I had my first faculty job, I was told by the chair, like, don't tell any of the students that you've been incarcerated or that you used to use drugs, right? Right. And it was like being closeted gay man again, right? Like I'm trying to hide who I am. Right. Like these tattoos are not like tattoo shop tattoos. Well, these, these are, but like sh- sh- ones like that, that are not. Get, is that what you get in minimum custody? Uh, but, um, but those are not tattoo shop tattoos, right? And so... You know, I was even wearing long sleeves all the time and hiding parts of me just so that people didn't figure out that I'd been to prison before him. Yeah. I wear pants to hide parts of me, too. You know what, all on, maybe we should uh, just go ahead and take another little break right here. Uh, We'd like to thank our sponsors, and we will be right back. 
Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. And with Ruby's mobile app, you easily control just how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com slash startupradio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and you get a $150 credit. That was Dave right there. He, Dave's not here. Good old Dave. <laughs> Man, we sure miss that Dave's guy. Dave's not here. We? Where are you Dave, at, Dave, where are you? All right, Chris, you know, we would appreciate you being here today. You know, we've got about five minutes left on the program, so why don't we get into what you're doing right now, the program that you've initiated, kind of quickly how you got into it and how many people and all that kind of stuff that you're serving right now. Yeah, so it started off as a Facebook group back in 2014. Um, once we got up to like 250 people, I gathered a group of co-founders together, people like from various different regions of the country, different ethnicities, genders, et cetera. So like a diverse group of people to develop it into a nonprofit organization. Um, we now have a 1,000 people across 43 different states. Um, so we have a pretty good spread. About 100, over 100 people have some kind of doctoral degree that are in the network wow. or are in a doctoral program right now. Most have their degrees already. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's sort of where we're at right now as a nonprofit organization trying to, to like, build out the thing. We do some things like uh, we have barbecues. Like every year in Washington, we have a barbecue for people in the, in the Northwest, formerly incarcerated college graduates. On the East Coast, we had one last year. Um, and then we sort of meet up at different conferences where we know, like, some of us are going to be at. So tell us a little story about somebody that you got into the program and how successful they came became. Um, so uh, one person I could think, remember how I told you I developed this network so that if people were, were doing any kind of direct support stuff, they mm -hmm. would have a network to tap into. So one person, Stan Andrees, um, contacted me probably back in 2017 and let me know he was doing this mentoring program, wanted to do this mentoring program. And so he now has a, a prison to PhD program that provides mentoring to people. Um, so he's able to like connect with that network and like build an organization through connecting with the network. And I, I don't know if I could pick out any one individual, but I've known a lot of people that have been in the network and like asked questions about applying for doctoral programs and been able to go into doctoral programs too. Cool. So where, what are you at right now? What is, you graduated, of course, from college, and what is your official status right now? Um, so I'm assistant professor at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Um, so I'm continuing to build out this organization. Um, and I'm also building a prison to UWT pathway program. Um, and then my research is on transitions from prison to college and sort of understanding how people develop different ideas about their future and how their ideas about their future can, can limit or enhance the, the sort of goals that they set for themselves. Do you get paid for your research? The re the, I get paid by the school for it, yeah. Okay. yeah. Wow. From cornfields? The Washington University of Washington. Are you a Husky or is that? Huskies, yeah, yeah. Huskies. Huskies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go Ducks. <laughs> yeah. We like the Ducks here. We love our Ducks. We'll see you. I think we're playing you guys like in about a month. <laughs> so anyway, congratulations, Chris, on where you've been and where you've made it to. And, uh, man, all the people that you've affected and helped. What a great what a great way to, to kind of kind of get where you're at, you know. Thanks. And if anybody wants to check out the network, they can look us up on Facebook, formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network, or go to our website, FICGN.org. Well, I think everybody should head to that. I was just about ready to ask you to do that. Oh, yeah. 
So it looks like we're out of time all on. What do you think of that? I think that's the perfect podcast right there. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Chris, so, yeah, thank you so much for being here and taking your time. You came all the way down from Tacoma today? Yeah, yeah, it was a great drive. Wow. That's, I don't know about that. Portland Portland traffic, it sucks. It, not compared to that drive between Tacoma and Seattle. Yeah, yeah, after, oh, after that traffic. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we'd like to thank our producer, Mark Grimes, his sidekick, Michael Coates, and our undernourished sound guy, Holon. We'll see you next week on Felony Inc. Podcast. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.